Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum. A podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Hey, everybody. I hope that you have had a good week. We are excited to bring you an episode today. Uh, Sebastian, we're going to start off with a little Ted Lasso. Uh, first concert, best concert. What is Ted Lasso? Number one, excuse me. Excuse Ted Lasso is the greatest show on television. Okay. Uh, uh, number two, so you need to just like, we should stop the recording. You should go watch it all. You'll be a better human afterwards. Okay. Uh, but uh, he, he is a, a wonderful, kind, loving person that everyone assumes is an idiot, but he's not an idiot. He's secretly oh. super smart and good with people. Uh, you know, oh. it's, it's a great, it's a great heartwarming show. And why is this related to Ted Lasso? So he asks a question of his boss in there that I thought would be a good banter question. That is, uh, he goes, all right, first concert, best concert. First concert, best concert. Okay. First concert was from, uh, it was a, it was a two first. So there's two bands, Libido and Teca, which were like rockish punk bands back in Peru, um, back in the day. Um, and I went with my cousins, I believe, and with my mom, I think. I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 or 14. Um, and then best concert, you know, that's hard because I think like, I think like best traditional concert I went to, um, oh, it, that's, that's really hard. Like, I, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of, um, one Taylor Swift concert that she put in such a really good, like crazy show that I was like, this is kind of, this is like not what I expected. And then I'm thinking about this other one that we had in Charlottesville where it was just like star after star after star. Um, and I was like the guy from Coldplay and like the roots, like there was, and like everything was a surprise. And then I'm thinking of also Bonnaroo, which is like a music festival, which is totally different. I don't think you can count Bonnaroo, but you know, I I like the idea, right? Okay. Yeah. So I was like, if if I cannot count Bonnaroo, maybe either either of those two, uh, were really, really awesome concerts. Oh, also Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard, but one of those is, will be the favorite. What about you? I love this question. So I, I'm not sure how to count the first concert. So the first one that I willingly went to, like alone, right. was uh, Vanessa Carlton, Goo Goo Dolls, and Third Eye Blind. Oh wow! So classic '90s. Wait, you know, where, where? So there was like an amphitheater down the street from my house where I grew up. So like, oh. I think we might have even walked to it. Um, okay. It's, it's okay. in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, but the first one I actually went to was a babysitter. I think uh, without permission took me to Spin Doctors. It was like in a bar somewhere. I think I wasn't supposed to go, but she, it was like a day concert once. Wow. But the, but the best one was easily Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks. And uh, I always forget how to pronounce his name, but like the guy from Fish, Trey, Anastasio oh. or whatever. Oh, okay. uh, that concert, It was just out of this world. So. Wow. That's what awesome. about you, Allison? Uh, first concert was gloriously a twofer. John Mayer and Counting Crows. Oh, wow. Like Wait, cool how old guy. are you in this one? I am 13. This is this is which John Mayer verse? This is like Heart of Life, John Mayer? Yeah, this is early John Mayer, yeah. not yeah. later John Mayer. I'm counting <laughs> crows. Um, yeah. Best this concert, hands down, no question, <laughs> Queens of the Stone Age in 2018. Oh, wow. Oh my goodness, it was life-changing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was, it was one of those concerts where you're just like, this is what it's about. <laughs> this is wow. why we're here. 
That's you know, awesome. I, I have to say, I'm not a huge like deadhead. I like the Grateful Dead and everything, but I recently saw the Grateful Dead with John Mayer in Indianapolis. It was fantastic. John wow. Mayer was like wonderful. Uh, yeah. And I, I always kind of heard he's kind of a jerk, but like, man, he can, he's good with the Grateful Dead, you know? <laughs> yep. He's yep. good with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, before we get too far into making this a music podcast, uh, our special <laughs> guest today, and I've had name coaching here, is Allison Lidke. <laughs> Uh, she's an assistant professor of economics at St. Olaf College. Uh, her research focuses on the macroeconomic effects of networks. Uh, she has a PhD in economics from the University of Virginia. So there you go. Woo-hoo! Go UVA. Uh, in a bat- <laughs> Excuse me. What was that? Is, that? is that a thing at UVA? Okay. Yeah, right. like it seemed like so like planned. I was like, that must be <laughs> It's like OHIO, but the UVA version. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's, it's, I'm an Ohio state fan, but I even find the OHIO, like I'm aware that's obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, we're aware it's obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a bachelor's degree in math from uh, William and Mary. So mm. uh, Allison, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and to start off, we'd love to hear a fun fact about yourself. It could be another concert, it could be anything you want. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I have a fun fact, unfun fact combo okay. to present to you today. So my fun fact is that when I was at the University of Virginia, wahoo wah, for five <laughs> years for my PhD, uh, my then boyfriend and then husband was in the army and stationed in Alaska. Mm. So throughout those five years, I got to fly to Alaska many times a year wow. and see the, yeah, the majesty and the wonder. Uh, my unfun fact is that I'm terrified of flying. Like Ooh. from the moment the plane takes off, to the moment it, the it hits way. the ground, I am apoplectic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you know this, but it takes a long time oh, to get from Virginia to Anchorage. So yeah. somewhere Direct between oh, new, new. Uh, the, the best you can do is two flights, usually like DC to Minneapolis, where I, mm. near where I live now. Gotcha. Um, and so it, it usually takes between 12 and 24 hours to get Gee, from DC wow, that's tough. to Anchorage. Um, and, you know, people would always say, oh, well, now you'll get better at it. You'll get mm, used to it. Mm. And that's false. <laughs> <laughs> so you will not get over your fears. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do to pass the time? Like, how did you distract yeah. yourself? Like unlimited movies? Like, um, ref- are you the yeah, referee so report person? I went phases because five years is a pretty long time to deal with this um so i went through a i'd rather do fewer longer flights phase mm-hmm. and that's definitely yeah. a movies mm-hmm. situation you definitely want to go with movies to pass the like six or seven hours of each flight and then after that i got a little worn out because the part that's hardest for me is being in the air taking mm-hmm. off i'm <laughs> too terrified to <laughs> see time pass and I don't mind landing. So I decided to choose like flights where there would be more landing time. Mm. Uh, so eventually I did like three or four flights. Either way, it's terrible. Uh, oh. And then you get jet lag because Anchorage is four hours. Have you ever tried the pills? Yes. So I started, of course, I finally <laughs> discovered the magic and the wonder of taking Dramamine right before the pandemic we're not sponsored so, any drug usage on this podcast thank you so much <laughs> legal legal issues i, I will say uh, yeah. i had some seatmates once that uh didn't use pills but they uh they just got super hammered and it was like a 15 yep. hour flight they were <laughs> wonderful people to sit right in between mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes that's of course been recommended to me many times it's just yeah. get really drunk 
Wow. Which is a way, but not my chosen way. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do other stuff after the flight, right? See your but in-laws. I, like, uh. Just to put an end to that story, your you are your two-body problem has now ended. Is that correct? Yes. Congratulations. So we, for the first time in a uh, seven, almost eight-year relationship, we now live under the same roof. Wow! And you're still wow. together. <laughs> yes. yes, we like each other even more. Even more. Oh, that's so nice. We should like that's definitely like a two-body problem podcast at some point that that needs to get done because that's a whole. Yeah. whole you just call it the two-body problem. Yeah, <laughs> the two. Yeah, yeah people exactly. think it's a physics podcast. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, and so before we get into the topic of the day, we just want to talk a little bit about your workflow, just how you work, what do you do, how do you approach, uh, you know, getting the various aspects of your job completed? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I'm a very, I have to write things down. Everything has to be written somewhere in order for it to enter into my brain. Uh, so I brought my planner. Mm, I like to nice. write everything She's down showing us a planner right planner. now, by the way. Yes, it is organized looking. Yes, mm-hmm. and it is color-coded. Every every class has a color. Every research project has a color. And this is the this is where I feel I really surpass my peers in like <laughs> being a little anal retentive. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that gets accomplished gets crossed off in a different color, and mm-hmm. anything that doesn't get accomplished and gets moved to a later date gets crossed off in the same color. So wow. I know. That's whether I accomplished a lot that day or whether I need to move it forward. That's funny. When did you start this color coding process? Um, in undergrad, in undergrad, okay. but I definitely embraced the planner life in the first year of graduate school. That was where I really, gotcha. I, I now keep all of them. So I have all these planners and I, every Christmas, my mom gets me a new one. So <laughs> I, I, you know, spend the lead That's up to nice. Christmas picking the next one. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what is the, uh, what's the key advantage of the colors? Like how, how does that help you uh, sort of in like relative to like not having them? Yeah, I think it's just keeps me entertained. Like it's okay. fun mm-hmm. for me. Every morning I sit down to look through the day and write the next day's stuff right. or, you know, weeks, weeks out and it's fun. I look forward to it. You know what? I, I actually like that. That's interesting. I'm obviously not a color coding person, but, but I get the point, right? It's like, imagine if we make, the aesthetics and the process of planning something that is super enjoyable, right? Would you be able to do it psychologically more? And maybe the answer is yes, right? Because you actually enjoy the process of planning, which actually ends up being super helpful for like the week. And and what about like on the moments where you're like super stressed out? Like, do you still do that or, or do you, cause you find it relaxing? Yes. Yes. So I do, I do still do it. It's definitely not one of the things that gets dropped by the wayside during very stressful weeks. I almost do it more so Mm. that I feel like I have an understanding of what I have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So, so as you're making these lists, can you just give us an idea of like, what it kind of looks like like you gave an example of like how the different colors are associated with different classes mm-hmm. but like at the beginning of every day do you are you like do you have like some master list and then you're like these are the four things i got to pull from there or how's it kind of work uh, actually it's kind of dictated by the kind of planner i've chosen so i have mm-hmm. a weekly planner which means that there's a few inches for each day mm-hmm. and that's how i decide what gets written down and what doesn't get written down some days when i have too much to do I add a post-it. If I need more room, then like I have to get out, out a post-it. Like, oh, this is a bad day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. So it's mostly um, 
items that need to be produced. I need to write a homework set. I need to write the introduction to a paper. I need to mm. send an email. Um, mm. Those are the typical types of things that get written in each day. Mm, mm, I see. Did, yeah. Was this one of your items today? Record a yeah. podcast? Awesome. Oh, yeah. Right here. That's awesome. And, and oh, nice. Do you, do you, uh, so do you use every day, including the weekends, or you not do it on the weekends? I've, st- I've, I've been trying to work less on the weekends. Okay. So I sort of purposefully don't write things down on the weekend okay. in an attempt to keep me from doing things. Mm. Um, but this weekend is, is going to be a failure of that plan. Yeah. I know already. Working, I'm working it too. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> That's right. Definitely working this weekend. <laughs> Um, so I don't, this is unrelated to our question, but I just love it. Uh, behind Allison right now, she has like a, a quote that just says everything is figure outable. And I just feel like for some, I don't know why I feel like that's related to workflow, but just like, I feel like if, if you're plan, if you're a planner person, somehow that quote is like related to that. Like I can figure out my plan and get it in this planner and like get it to work. It's, it's also sort of part of my teaching philosophy that, mm. that, Nothing is too hard for you. You can figure it out. And I'm here to help you. So before we get into today's topic, we want to hear a little bit about something you're working on or just something you want to promote. Uh, Is there anything of that nature you'd love to share? Yes, absolutely. So I study the economics of networks, which means I'm really interested in how the connections between people or places or things affect their decisions and then affect the macro economy. Um, So there's more traditional versions of that that I'm working on right now. I have a paper with my uh, thesis advisor at the University of Virginia, Eric Young, Mm. uh, where we look at financial networks, which are the loan relationships between banks. And we try to use that to see if we can identify structurally important banks to try and prevent these cascading financial failures that mm. were such a big problem in, in 2008, 2007, 2008. Uh, and then when I was writing that paper, I realized that I needed to take a step back and write a different paper that makes an even more straightforward point, which is that the connections that exist between people, banks, schools, firms, whatever, really matter. Whether they exist, whether they don't exist, the specific ones that are there can lead to huge differences in aggregate outcomes. And I feel like we really don't study that very often. So I took a step back and I wrote sort of a shorter paper that just said the links that exist between banks can have enormous effects on financial volatility overall. Mm. Mm. So those are my two sort of traditional ones. And then I have... um, I've sort of started to explore different ways of looking at that question and looking at those connections and seeing uh, other ways I can ask that question. So I'm working on a paper with Carly Urban at Montana State, Mm -hmm. looking at how the connections between high schools affect the types of financial education classes that they offer. And do your peers influence the types of decisions you ask? even above and beyond regulations you face, county level stuff, state level stuff. Are your peers driving that? Yeah. So, so I, this is really cool to me. And I just have a question about like how you measure some of this stuff. Cause I imagine like a part of the reason that like people don't study this is cause like, it's hard to measure. And like the only stuff I'm familiar 
with where I've like read a couple of papers on physician networks and like, not that it's wrong, but it's like kind of incomplete. They just like, look at, they use a data set and they're like, how many patients are shared by these physicians? Mm. But like, there's all sorts of other reasons why patients are shared in banks. Do you do like the same thing with customers or like, like, how are you thinking yeah. about networks? Yeah. So one of the biggest problems and a point that I make in that volatility paper is that we do not have the data we need Mm. to answer these questions sufficiently. It's always a problem to have incomplete data, but to have incomplete data describing networks is a really big problem. And there are very few data sets that have truly complete information, which is why so many of the papers you see in this area are very theoretical. Mm. So that's why, and that's also why I wanted to try out this high school peer network thing, or I'm working on a paper with um, Emily Cook and Riley Acton, where we do sort of a college version of that, looking at how colleges chose to open in fall of 2020 in the face of COVID. Were they driven by their peers' decisions when they were choosing a, a reopening scheme? And part of the reason I wanted to pursue those projects is because there you're actually constructing the network yourself. You are saying, this is the network. Now mm-hmm. let's figure out how it affects things instead of going out and trying to find a network. When you, when you talk about networks, the one thing that comes to my head is like spillover effects. And maybe that's a way of, of mentioning yeah. the networks. We had um, earlier in the podcast, Abehi Yoha, who had his job oh, record paper. Oh, okay. So like, Maybe maybe help me help me tie there is like is she also measuring uh, networks or she's doing something different than the networks right Yes absolutely and after I listened to that I paused that podcast and emailed her to ask her if she wanted to organize a session with me <laughs> Wow okay that's awesome <laughs> Yes so she is all, she's studying you know things that I have also looked at that I'm very interested in so I was thrilled to hear about mm. her research cool so networks can be the i guess broadly defined and, and then each in each context it may be measured differently whether that's oh, yeah. in physicians <laughs> cases and whether that's banks like you know customers yep. or whatever other kinds of uh definitions of networks we can find. many many different definitions yep gotcha as long as there's an economic agent and a relationship between them you've got yeah. yourself a network but maybe that's a great place to pause and shift topics to talk about the topic of the day. So today we're going to have a conversation with Allison about procuring a liberal arts job or like a, it's a LAC, a LAC. Every time I see LA, I see, I think like Latin America. So I'm like procuring a job in Latin America, which is very different, um, which she has done this twice now. So we believe that she has good experience in it. So in order to get uh, things started, Tell us a bit about your graduate experience, maybe. We can start there. And when you realized that going into a liberal arts school would be a really good place or fit for you. My story of how I realized that a liberal arts college job was going to be right for me started in my undergraduate experience. So I went to the College of William and Mary for my undergraduate degree. And um, because no one else in my family had been to college, That was the only data point I had in my head. I was just like, all Mm -hmm. colleges are like this college. And this college is very teaching focused and very student focused. And so I thought, who wouldn't want to work in that environment? Mm. This is where I want to be. This is Mm -hmm. what I want to do. And I sort of gleaned from conversations with other people that, okay, if I want to do this, the way to do it is to get a PhD. 
Mm-hmm. And then I realized the way to get a PhD was to get a PhD in economics. And so <laughs> I decided to, to pursue an economics PhD. And then I ended up at the University of Virginia, which for a research university is still very student focused. Mm-hmm. But compared right. to the College of William and Mary, it was a whole different can of tomatoes. Uh, that first year where I was at a research university, I was blown away by how different it was. Mm. And so part of that, realizing that it was going to be so different, it wasn't going to be as teaching focused Mm -hmm. as my experience had been, made me think, okay, so clearly there's different types Mm -hmm. of schools. (laughs) What are those types? Mm -hmm. How do I find the right type? And so throughout my, my graduate experience, pursuing teaching opportunities, pursuing people who also felt that way, I eventually gleaned, oh, okay, so liberal arts colleges Mm. are where they're going to be really focused on the teaching and really focused on working with students, mentoring, Mm -hmm. doing research with them, just Mm -hmm. being more of a a small campus community where everybody works together. From your story that I heard is, I wanted to be in a place like this. So if I want to be faculty in a place like this, I need to go to the PhD. Was there any point in that process in which you were talking to some mentors at ACs and they were like, but that's great. But remember that the main point of the PhD is to do research and they only teach you to do research. And then they kind of like the second question to tack into that is like, did you have an expectation that while you're doing your PhD, they're going to teach you how to teach? Because spoiler alert, they don't teach us they how to do teach. not. <laughs> No, I, and, and so I did not have that I remember any mentors that said like, okay, heads up, you're going to get there and it's going to be a totally different thing. Right. And they are not going to focus on teaching. They're not going to, it's going to be a totally different environment. And I'm assuming that they thought I knew that. Mm. I think that most of my mentors thought, oh, well, she's going to go get a PhD. She's going to try and be a professor. I'm sure she knows Mm. that there are other types of schools out there that aren't this type of school. Yes, and then as you pointed out, they do not teach you how to teach. Yeah, that's such a a funny thing to me that like, because I also didn't really realize this like, quote unquote, secret lives of professors that like occurs behind the scenes when I was a student. Like, right. it's so funny to, to try to think back to how you were as a student and what you think professors did outside of the classroom. And like, I went to Miami University where your co-author Riley is at now. And it's like, kind of like a liberal arts college in, in their focus mm-hmm. on teaching. Uh, but like, I also, I just thought they were like, kind of like high school teachers, right? Like I had no idea. Um, until right. like maybe my third year oh, I see. research occurred. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I would say William and Mary is very, is a similar type of thing as Miami and that the students feel like it's totally student focused, but mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it, it, the faculty feel, you know, it's very research focused. So that's, that's super interesting. Okay. So you, you then just to connect the dots, realized I had this epiphany of like, okay, these are the kinds of schools that I want to end up because I really value that student connection, especially at the college level. Um, So then conditional on you being at that point, did you like took some steps? Like, I mean, at that point, I feel like there's so many things you can do because in the PhD, again, they don't teach us how to teach. And, but maybe you're like an innate teacher or an educator. Um, There's things like the center for teaching. There's so many things one can do. So, so let me talk about that. Yes. So once I figured out that's what I wanted to do, I 
took every teaching opportunity I could. Okay. So I loved wow. being a TA. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was being a TA, I realized that there might be a chance for me to get to teach my own class over the mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of waged a campaign to get them to let me teach intermediate math. To the econ department over- or like who, who is the campaign for? <laughs> yeah. So in the econ department, some, it, it waxes and wanes, but when I started trying to get this, they weren't very interested in letting a graduate student teach their own class. Because Even over the summer? Just, yeah. Uh, we had the exact opposite experience and our, and where I'm at, our graduate students also teach. Like you were expected to teach your own class as a sole instructor of record. We had a version of how to teach, but like it was lacking in many ways. I mean, it was, I learned a lot, but like it wasn't like, here's a syllabus, here's this, right? It was like a person sharing <laughs> What's a syllabus? It was kind of like a weekly podcast with this guy that knew a lot of stuff. Um, but like, I, I guess I just want to say that's not the, maybe, maybe that is the right. normal experience, but it wasn't at least my no, experience. Right. It may or may not be, right? Depends on the university. Right. You're totally right. Yeah. Right. And I have spoken with a lot of people, especially people who work at liberal arts colleges, and they all have very different experiences. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of colleagues who had to really ask, had to really push to get to teach their own classes. And I have colleagues that that's almost silly to them to think because they had to teach so many classes on their own. So sorry, you were telling us about you, you were doing a campaign to let you teach a class in, right. in, while you're doing your PhD. And as you continue that story, I did want to ask one question, which is, was there a moment in which you were like, I'm going to be open about this decision and like not care about people think? And I asked this question because there's obviously this idea that people say, that it's like, well, you don't tell, you know, your advisors that you want to focus on that because some people right. just care about research. So this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not very good at hiding my feelings about anything. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> uh, like, it's never a mystery to anybody who is in the same room as me how I feel about anything at a given moment. So it never really occurred to me to mm. hide it from my, from my advisor, but my advisor was great about it. Uh, I told him, this is what I want to do. I definitely want to end up at a school where teaching is a high priority, someplace like William and Mary or a, li- a liberal arts college like where I am now. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you <definitely laughs> okay. do want to do that. <laughs> okay. And of course, Eric Young went to Washington and Lee. So he oh, knew the magic and the that. wonder of a liberal okay. arts college. I also had a lot of support from people like Lee Kopic and Ken Elzinga at UVA, who do a lot of mentoring of the people who are so passionate mm, about teaching. So when I waged that campaign to try and get a class <laughs> of my own, I had you know a great supporter and mentor in Lee Kopic, who was one of the people at the time who chose mm-hmm. the instructors for over the summer. So I just, I have a question. I like, I think it's great that you did that and you sort of went out of your way to create this signal of how interested you are in teaching. But I'm curious, like in the liberal arts job market, like, does it matter to have previously taught a class Mm. as a sole instructor of record? Like, do you think that really gave you a leg up getting this job? Or do you think like there's enough people that have never taught a class that they'll judge you from your presentation or something? So I get a lot of questions about this from people who are on the job market now saying, is it going to kill my chances to get a job at a liberal arts college to not have taught my own class? And the answer to that question is no, because there are ways that you can signal that you take it seriously 
that you thought carefully about how to be a good teacher. But in my case, especially because not that many people from UVA had gone on to liberal arts colleges jobs. It was very much not the norm. And so it was very important because of that to send a signal that one, I take it very seriously, but Mm. also that the people who know me, the people in the department there think I can handle it. Mm. I, I think that that played a big role in me getting the interviews and then jobs that I got was that it showed that the faculty had faith in my teaching ability as well. I was told at least during the market that liberal arts schools, yes, they're interested about some unobservable component about you do being a good teacher and educator, but they also really do care about you being a good researcher as well. And I think sometimes I feel like people just be like, oh, it's all about teaching when in reality I also think it has to be like high quality research, right? Is that, what's your conception there that some schools do care about research or not? Or Oh, they absolutely do. I, I mean, I would not, you, you can't get a liberal arts faculty job without incredible research. And I've talked to so many different departments at this point because yeah. I went on the job market twice in, in three <laughs> years. Uh, so I've, I've interviewed with a lot of different liberal okay. arts colleges and there's just so much variability in what they envision themselves as, what they envision mm, their department that's as. That's so important. Yeah. Some places see themselves as research schools where you also happen to be absolutely magnificent teachers. Mm-hmm. And some places envision themselves as sort of fully enclosed campus communities where this great research happens, but students can witness it and be part of it. And they're also incredible teachers. It, it's just sort of different, mm-hmm. different views of the, of the purpose, but mm-hmm. all of those views feature really strong research. Mm-hmm. I see. So that's important. So, so then to highlight uh, your answer is, there's going to be slightly different sets of objectives that each liberal arts schools will have. But embedded in those aspect objectives, there's always going to be a component of research and presumably also an important component about what they think makes a really good either mentor, advisor, or, ed- or educator. That's exactly right. And uh, the other thing I would say is great about working at a liberal arts college is that some of the places specifically design their research requirements for tenure so that you can dream big, try crazy ideas aim really high and take that time that it takes to get something published. Like as we all have experienced, it takes forever Mm -hmm. to get stuff published. And if you have really, really high number requirements for papers, Mm -hmm. then you, you have to, you have to be strategic about where you send them. And so places like where I am have specifically designed the number that you need to get to be low enough that you can aim really high the hmm. first few times. And that way you don't have to try and get a thousand papers written. Hmm. You can get a few written and aim all of them really high at first and then, you know, see how that goes and then aim again. Mm-hmm. So you knew that this is something you were interested in ahead of time. I think there's a lot of students that may, you know haven't been to a liberal arts college. Maybe they mm-hmm. went to a state right. school or they're an international student. Um, you know, how do you like how can someone tell if this is for them? Or, you know, I don't mm. want to ask you a cheesy question like that, but like, uh, 
I guess make it, that's make it extra extra cheesy because I yeah. love cheese. So yeah, yeah. give me some cheese whiz or something here. <laughs> uh, well, my first suggestion is to go ahead and try teaching. See how you like teaching. If you love it, if that's the thing that you wake up for every day in graduate school, that you're like, yes, I mm-hmm. get to teach today, even if it's a discussion section, then pursue that. See how that goes. You know, one of the great things about working where I work is that. I get to work on research for six hours or for one day of the week. And then I get to shift gears and go to teaching. And that makes me better at both things. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the type of person you are, where you go like full pedal to the metal Mm -hmm. on your research, and then, you know, you hit a hurdle and you get stuck and you get Mm -hmm. frustrated with the code and you want to throw it out the window, (laughs) then you get to go teach. You break stuff down into its individual components. You teach it to the students. You communicate clearly. It sort of resets your brain and you come back to the research and you're better at it. Mm -hmm. So if that's the type of thing that you like doing, you like that kind of balance, you like getting up in front of students and Mm. imparting knowledge to them, then I would at least think about it. Ask around, you know, do the classic networking advice that people give ask to get coffee with someone Mm -hmm. who does the job you're interested in and ask them about their day see if that kind of day speaks to you right totally and just to to talk about broad characteristics that people may not know about so are you expected to oh any expectation do we teach more in liberal arts schools than we do in research one universities or is that a myth yes no that's true uh, but not it's not onerous most of the time. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always, there's huge heterogeneity in people's preferences, right? So mm-hmm. I have interviewed for jobs where I have to teach a 4-4. Mm-hmm. I have to teach four classes in each semester and I'm still expected to write some papers. And I've interviewed for jobs all at liberal arts colleges where I'm expected to teach a 2-2. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, there's variability there, but on average, yes, there's, there's maybe one more class per semester. Okay. Guess. One thing I did not do in grad school is what those numbers two, two, one, three meant. Yeah. So okay. let me let me explain right now, and you guys tell me that I, if I'm do. wrong. So I could, for example, have a load that is well right now is zero three, which means in the boo, fall. Boo, this man! I listen. Sorry. I okay. Betting is a great. No, point. no, it's a great. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't interrupt you. I'm just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think right now zero in the fall and three classes in the in the um, spring. But then two of those classes are actually one course. So it's just two sections of one course. And then one, uh, the other one is a different course. There was another year in which I did same load, which is a one, two, right? Total three, but there were three different classes. So is that how you guys also understand load numbers? Yep, that's that's exactly how we understand it. So that would, if you were telling me about your zero three, I would say that's a zero three, but with only two preps. Right. Oh, great. Because then there's the, the, the language of the prep, right? Zero yeah. through only do prep. And that's the it, preparation, right? So there's right. only, that's where that doubling right. of the course happened. And just right. to echo Allison's experience, I also interviewed with a few uh, liberal arts colleges. And like I currently at a non-liberal arts college teach a 2-2 with three preps. And I interviewed with some liberal arts colleges where I would have had a lower teaching load, right? So right. Um, it's not necessarily... Yeah that it's a guarantee that at the liberal arts college, uh, right. there's right. Cause the preps are really big time consuming things. Right. Yes, so they you may have <laughs> like a four, uh, right. Uh, a zero or zero four or whatever, but only have one prep that could actually look very different 
then yeah. zero That'd be a whole different thing. Different perhaps. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I want to also ask a question because I've, I've heard, I have friends at various types of LACs uh, as well. And I, I don't want to like talk about the specific institution because that's not, not necessarily important, but I have a friend at one place where they are expected to be like really like almost on call for their students. So like emails oh. are not just responded to immediately, but like thoroughly explained office hours are like, uh, not, I don't, I'm not trying to say like the professor is like an entertainer or something, but like, <laughs> they're almost like having another class where they're like reteaching yeah. things and like, cause the students are really into it. Um, and I know that differs across yeah. space at all. Could you maybe expand, like, am I correct there? Or is that a wrong perception? Yes. Yeah, so that is true. Some places that's not true for me. Um, uh, our chair works really hard to protect our number of preps, mm. like we were discussing and to sort of protect the idea that there's many different ways to do this well. If the best way for you to do it well is to do that, you have you respond to emails immediately and you put on basically another class during office hours. If that's the way for you to do it great, that's great. But if that's not the way for you to do it great, that's okay too. I think the other point there that maybe it's important is you may land a job in a liberal arts school and maybe not necessarily like the experience there, but that probably doesn't mean that you still don't like all liberal arts schools, right? So maybe can you talk a little bit about that and maybe your experience with that? Yes, that's very true. And that, I sort of saw that and felt that both times I was interviewing, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I had a vision in my head of teaching really well and engaging with the students and working with them on research projects and, you know, an academical village life. (laughs) And I interviewed with plenty of liberal arts colleges where that was not their vision. Mm. Um, And, and that didn't change my opinion that I knew this was right for me. I, that was clearly the perfect job for someone else who loved liberal arts colleges. I have friends who teach at liberal arts colleges who, uh, when we see the same job, or, or often we interviewed for the same job, and there would be ones that I loved and I would have loved to go to and I was so excited about. And, you know, my friends who have very similar jobs were like, I would never go there ever mm-hmm. after hearing. So there's a huge variety in positions and a huge variety in preferences yeah. of people who want to work at those places. So I, this is like great information to start to like talk about, like, hey, there's a lot of heterogeneity here. Um, so like, let's say you're a student and you're like, I'm on the market or I'm going to be on the market in a couple of years. Like, I want to know more about those things. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, that's not really like Googleable. Like, so I know you mentioned like, well, like ask someone to get a coffee, but like, is there a way to try to like figure out some of these things that is less time intensive for like a curious graduate student? I don't think so. Not okay. that I know of. Um, I mean, most of it for me, I think it's just like every other type of job on the econ job market is you have in your head, you know, you, you fill out all these applications and you have these ones in your head that are like the perfect one. You're like, surely they will contact me. That's <laughs> the one I want. And then of course, there's always like 50% of those ones that you're like, that's the one I'm perfect that they never get in touch with totally, you. Yeah. And then you do the interviews and you redo that whole process. And there's three that you're absolutely in love with. And you, you're definitely going to go there and you're kind of stressed out about the idea of choosing between those and they don't get in touch with you either. So it's the same process of talking to the school, learning about the people, going there, which I realized we couldn't do this time on the job market, but that's so important to figure out if the 
the environment, the colleagues, the community is a good fit. Mm-hmm. It's possible that maybe that's more of a thing in liberal arts colleges, that there's more variability and, and figuring out if the, that one is the right one takes more of that experience. Yeah, that's that's that makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm also thinking like about Alex's question in which maybe some students are like, well, I'm just trying to find a job, right? So like, I'm going to choose among the set of things that they actually give me an offer and maybe through the file to learn that process. And so maybe can you tell us a little bit about what's your sense of like, you know, what are liberal arts arts schools looking for when in the market? And what are ways that maybe in that process of the interview or the file, you you can do some signaling that could be really appealing to those institutions? My impression is that that's really hard, no matter what type of position you're looking true. for. It was certainly true for me. I So one thing you can do, this is true of every job in economics, I think, is be really interested in the job. Mm-hmm. Ask questions. Show that you looked into that particular school and that particular position and have thought carefully about how you personally and not someone else would fill it. Mm. Uh, And I think that's especially helpful for liberal arts colleges. The other thing I would say that you can do to signal that this would be good for you, that you would be a good fit for this is um, talk about working with students. Ask questions. This is, this was my go-to question. Both times (laughs) I was on the job market, I would ask about their research opportunities with undergraduates. Sometimes there was like a name for the program. And I would be like, can you tell me a little bit more about the McNair Scholars? Right. Right. Oh, Have any of you stand. done a project like that? What was your experience? Can but now you, you can't, now, now, now no one can use it because everyone is going to use the, the Allison question and the, the new equilibrium emerges. No, I'm just kidding. So yeah. I, I actually, I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so somebody that gave me like they, when they were a fifth year, I was a fourth year and they gave like tips for doing well in the market. They had this phrase that I still tell students now, which is use questions, not as an opportunity to learn information, but as an opportunity to signal interest in the interviews. And that's like kind of stuck with me in like many different settings where like, like, it's kind of like, what are you going to learn in there? Like, oh, how much do you pay me or whatever? But you could be like, (laughs) you know, like, Hey, I see you have this cool thing. Meaning like, I looked at your website and took this seriously, you know, like. We wanted to ask you first, if you had any kind of like other little thought that we didn't really get to touch on. Well, I do have one more tip. This is a tip that I give to um, students who ask about how they can signal to liberal arts colleges okay. that they're, they're really interested, especially if they are at a school where there's fewer teaching opportunities, where there's fewer independent mm. teaching opportunities. Uh, most schools, like you actually mentioned a little earlier, Sebastian, have a, a center for teaching the Mm -hmm. Center for Teaching Excellence. Ours is the Center for Innovation in the Liberal Arts here. (laughs) Most schools have something like that. And most of those places have programs that they run to help you become a better teacher. So at the University of Virginia, the Center for Teaching Excellence has sort of a fellowship program where you apply and they help you become a better teacher. They observe your classes. They require you to reflect on the teaching process, all of which was incredible preparation mm, for mm. writing teaching statements mm. and for getting letters saying that I was a good teacher. So make sure you seek out, probably outside of your department, mm-hmm. opportunities to get feedback on teaching, to participate in these types of programs with 
students from all over the school who also care about teaching because mm-hmm. that made a huge difference for me. That's super interesting. And that, that makes, you, makes me think about a question, which is, let's say I did my first teaching gig and it did not go so hot as a PhD student. And so my eval is not that great. How, what's it, what's a, I mean, uh, aside from being honest, I guess, which is maybe the simple answer, maybe help us understand how to construct a narrative that can still be helpful in, for that person who still wants to get a job in the warehouse school. I think that it's, it's almost better to have a really bad first go oh, okay. because then you can construct the narrative where you grew. Mm, this is this is even advice they give at to to me and other junior professors at liberal arts colleges is the first year very well may be a total tire fire and that's okay because what's really important for tenure and what's really important in applying for jobs is showing that you took the information in, thought carefully about it, and then implemented some change. It's almost better to say, well, I tried working in small groups, but that completely crashed and burned. So (laughs) then I tried this different teaching method and that went a little better. So I thought I would try this other thing. It's almost better to experiment and see things fail Hmm. and then talk about how you learned from that yeah. in order to get this type of job. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I had an experience in my, uh, there's just one time teaching this class, health economics. And in the end, I didn't think I did a really good job. And it's my first time teaching it. But then I was like, okay, I know so many things that I would do different for the next time. And it's funny, I haven't had the chance to to you know, teach it again, but in one of my annual reviews that, again, that's another thing we should probably talk about at some point, um, that having jobs, they were like, oh, so you know, this, this class, you didn't, have, you didn't do so well. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, and the students are right. Like, it wasn't a great <laughs> class. And I'll tell you why it wasn't. And I'll tell you what I was trying to do and why I failed at doing it. And I mean, again, this is maybe specific to Baden, but I think my senior colleagues were like, okay, cool. Like, makes sense. Like, what you're saying is not crazy. Um, you know, as long as you're not insulting students, like, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I had a similar experience where I, the first time I taught a stats class, I like made it way too hard. And then mm. I like spent the next year, like thinking about it a lot where I was like, why did I do like, like, why was it too hard? And like, I went up and down and then I like basically reprepped the course. And the next time yeah. I taught it, like not only did the evaluations improve, but I was like, oh yeah, I did a terrible job teaching that the first yeah. time <laughs> I tried to teach like in an intro stats class fixed effects. That's all bad mistake you know i don't know why i did that but, yeah no for sure teaching is hard guys by the way like yeah. if you haven't taught before if there's people in this listen to this podcast you haven't taught before it's 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 funny because like you can spend little time and get by but if you want to create a good product is it's not easy especially for those of us who have not learned how to teach and that's why the center for teaching or any of those kinds of resources where you're learning how to be an educator are, are super important. Um, so basically Allison's like very brief story was went to an awesome liberal arts college that was student centered and then realized very quickly uh, there is a spectrum of how students are thought of at different universities and colleges. Uh, some think of them, you know, as uh, you know, a thing that is, happens on Tuesdays where research happens on all the other days, you know, as like almost an afterthought, whereas other places, you know, it's all about the students. Uh, and even among liberal arts colleges, there, there's a spectrum of where students are. Even if they're the, the linchpin, it may be that uh, everything is teaching or it could be that like 
uh, they, they want a, a full research plus full teaching plus like, you know, like, like some like uh, city on the hill or something. Uh, so let's say you, you think you want to be involved with one of these liberal arts colleges. What, what should you do if you're a PhD student? Um, well, one thing is to teach. Uh, and at many places like where I went, like you can teach and you could teach a lot of classes if you wanted to. I actually had uh, cohort members that taught uh, six or seven uh, college classes and even taught at the high school level uh, at, at nearby uh, charter schools. So you could do that, but many of you may be at institutions where that's not possible. So just do what you can to signal that you're interested in it. Uh, if you can teach a class, awesome. But if you can't, that's not going to prevent you from being able to be interviewed by a liberal arts college. The key is to get it in the letter and teaching statement and to truthfully signal your interest uh, in one of these places. And the efforts uh, by trying to teach or, or having taught a class, even if it's not common, will, will hopefully help convey that. Uh, and, and in addition to to, to this, you could go to the Center for Teaching and Learning. You could they perhaps have certificate programs or other, you know, sort of peer observation things that you could do. Uh, and, and we didn't actually talk about this, uh, I think, much in, in the podcast. But even if you're a person who's like, no, I don't think I want to go to liberal arts college. I just want to interject. I think it's really valuable to engage in all of these types of things. Number one, That's like kids pay a lot of money for education. So like we want to deliver education to them. And number two, even if you don't care about that, if you're like, well, I don't, why would I care about that? It makes your presentations better. I really find it like it sort of all interacts with each other. Yes. That's, that was really good. Thank you for yes. saying that. Like I said, both things make me better at the other thing. Teaching mm. makes me a better researcher. Research makes me a better teacher. Every week, we like to ask our guests for a recommendation of the week. This could be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, a kitchen recipe, anything that improves your life in a small way. Allison, what is your recommendation for the week? This is one that definitely improves my life in a small way. This is a cocktail recommendation. Yes! That I learned well, the first cocktail recommendation. From someone on Twitter. So someone I've never met, Ashani Kanpal. We were having a conversation on Twitter about Manhattans, and she recommended to me the cocktail, the Green Point, which is very much like a Manhattan, very whiskey focused, very bitter. That's my favorite part of Manhattans is the bitters, uh, except that you add yellow chartreuse to it. And yellow chartreuse is like this sort of bitter herbal. Um, it's an intense Li li liqueur is it a liqueur or is it a liqueur, liqueur? yeah now i don't know what the word, word is but it's <laughs> strong. amazing yes it's very strong and i tried this cocktail after she recommended it and it's a new favorite so wow. if you are the type of person that likes those bitter boozy cocktails this is one for you for sure that's awesome and if you're over 21 too thank you <laughs> yes. great alex what is yours uh, so I have recently signed up for this. I'm normally like pretty anti like signing up for spam. Uh, but I, <laughs> I signed up for this thing uh, called Bright by Text. And basically it's just like, I think like once a week or maybe you can set your preferences, but whatever. I get it like once a week and just like information uh, for parents about like what you can do with your kid. So like uh, it's like from PBS or like P NPR or some combo of those makes it. So you can sign up for it by texting Bright to 274448. Uh, and then if you do that, uh, they'll just ask you like the gender and age of your kid. And I think maybe your zip code. And then like once a week, I get something that like you can, so my daughter's about to turn one, be like, just remember, you could like ask your kid like a little quiz question every now and then like, we're about to go eat. Should we take the spoon or should we take this like mm. toy boat? And they're like, this helps your kid do blah, blah, blah. And like, I, I don't know. Toy boat. 
Yeah, always take the tugboat to help eat. That's the correct answer, clearly. But like, it just like tells you like, here's why you should do that. Uh, and it just gives me a little extra piece of information. Cause like, I, yeah. I don't know. I do the same that, thing. that is nice. Cause it makes you more secure maybe about the parenting. Yeah. Not just that. Like, I don't like, I'm not like around a lot of other parents right now. It's like, right. I was like, Oh, that's, right. that's smart. I'll do that. Right. Makes sense. I love it. Thank you. Sebastian? My recommendation of the week. It's, it's, a, it's a, I don't know if it's controversial or not, but my, this was told to me by my advisor, Kit Carpenter, which is, you know, submit your job market paper. <laughs> as simple as that. I Let me tell you a very brief story. So I did it. I submitted my job market paper kind of like the first year that I was a professor. Yeah. Um, you know, tried some places, got rejected, kept trying. And there was one place that gave me some uh, referee reports and, and it was a rejection. And then I was like, you know what? Okay, these referee reports are actually really useful. I'm going to do those things and then resubmit it. And that was a mental block because my head was like, oh, gosh, I have to do this referee reports and then submit it. And it really pushed when I finally was able to resubmit it. Um, my Democratic paper was accepted um, this year. That's like five years after I graduated. And maybe that's not going to look so hot. But you know what? I want other people to learn from my mistakes. Just, you know, I know it sucks. I know you may don't like that paper at the point, but just keep pushing. That's my recommendation. For Sebastian, and I talk about this, I think, like not on the podcast a lot. Like I, nothing from my dissertation is published and it like sucked the first couple of years because I would send it out. I'd get the referee reports and then I would spend like six to eight months like working on stuff. And like, you know, it was exactly that kind of resistance or fear or whatever you want to call it. And like, uh, it's, it's real. So I yeah. totally, I'm on board with um, <laughs> submit your yeah. job market. Easier said than done for yeah. sure. And I, yeah. I guess I, I want to add another recommendation of the week because Sebastian was unaware of it. Watch Ted Lasso, people. That show's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I just wanted to echo the recommendation to submit your job market paper. My first year out of my PhD, my goal was to get my job market paper submitted before the end of the first semester. And you know what? I submitted it while I was sitting in the final for my nice. class. Well done. So the last possible day <laughs> I accomplished that goal. Crossed it off in a different color in the final. <laughs> nice. That's that awesome. good. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, you can certainly find me on Twitter. My handle is at Lidkey Allison. Um, but you can also find out more information about my research and my teaching at my website, which is aolidkey.com. Great. Awesome. And we'll have the links on the show notes. That's all we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye.